Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes are available free of charge, more than 500 and counting. There's an official Other People app. That, too, is free. Everything's free. So I count on the support of listeners to help keep things going. If you would like to show some support of this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Thank you very much. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. He said, hey, everybody, how's it going? Right. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Very excited about today's show. I have Willie Vlotten back on the program for a second time. He has a new novel out called Don't Skip Out on Me. It is available right now from Harper Perennial. It is the official February pick of The Nervous Breakdown. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. And uh, we have a monthly book club. Willie's book is this month's pick. And uh, he was kind enough to give me an hour and to talk to me about uh, his life and his work and everything that goes into it. For those of you not familiar with Willie Vlaughton, you should know that in addition to being an excellent writer... He is also a wonderful musician, and uh, he and his band, Richmond Fontaine, cut an album called Don't Skip Out on Me, which is an instrumental album, uh, sort of like an album of the American West. I don't know what you would call it, Western instrumental album. It, it evokes the American West. I'll put it to you that way. It's a great album, and uh, you're going to be hearing some tracks from that as interstitial music on this program, on this episode, and uh, that is available. So Don't Skip Out on Me, the novel. And don't skip out on me the album. Uh, don't skip out on me the album. Both available now. I recommend both. What about? I've been thinking about this show. I was thinking about this show the other day. Like why I do this show. I, I tend to spend a lot of time pondering this. Or it's just maybe I just had like a simple thought. It was just that I don't really have conversations like I have on this show anywhere else in my life with any great degree of frequency. I mean, like every once in a while they'll happen, but there's something unique about the conversations that I have on this show, which is why I think I keep doing it. 
Like where, like where else in my life do I have conversations like this? My wife and I, uh, Carrie, like we have great conversations, but when you have little ones, it gets hard. You're busy. You're running around. If there is time to talk, there's usually a kid in the room, which means you have to edit for content. And then by the time, you know, the kids are to bed and you know, you're just exhausted. You don't have time for like a big intensive sit down. You, you just kind of want to like lie there and uh, watch TV. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I was just like, wow, I really like this show. I really like these conversations. It's amazing that, uh, I have this thing. Do people have these kinds of conversations normally in their lives? Is this something that most people just get in their everyday life? And this, and I'm the guy who only gets it on this podcast. I don't know. You tell me. I got a letter from a listener named Suhail. He says, Brad, I hope you're well. I'm sitting here on my Ikea sofa in an overpriced apartment in the East Village watching Bobby Flay. I don't know why Shishito Peppers made me think of you in your show. I feel your talents have not been realized to their truest potential. I think you could host a late night show. In this gold rush of competing for streaming viewership, I'm sure there would be a window of time for the Brad Listy Extra Late Show. I'm serious about this. Norm MacDonald started his own show on YouTube. Have you ever considered on-camera interviews? Signed, Suhail. So thank you, Suhail. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. If I'm not, I, uh, please forgive me. I have not given a ton of thought to on-camera interviews. I have in the past had a couple of conversations with people who suggested that I should be filming the other people podcast, that I should have video cameras running, that I should be streaming it or, you know, filming it and then posting it online on social media and what have you as a way of, uh, you know, driving listenership. But I've never done it because to be honest with you, I don't love being on camera. Like I don't, I don't hate it, but I don't, it's not something that I am drawn to the way that I like to be, uh, talking into a microphone for, <laughs> for some reason. But, uh, I also feel like it might intrude upon the intimacy of the conversation. I guess, you know, it's like, I think that that would, it would change the temperature of the room somehow. And the reality too, is that I, I love, I love radio. I love the idea of it just being like audio and you listen to it and you imagine what it looks like in the room. Sort of like when you read a book and you imagine what thing, you know, you imagine the thing happening. I like that literary quality to a, a podcast and to radio. Now, having said that, it's entirely possible that I'm not realizing my truest potential. I have that feeling uh, quite often. Like it's a worry of mine. Like what do I, am I making the most of my life? Am I going to have regrets at the end? Am I, am I doing enough? Have I accomplished what I need, you know, need to accomplish? Do I have a sense of mission? What is my mission? That's been on my mind a lot lately. Maybe I should be a YouTube star. I'm not like, you know, maybe, I think it would have to be maybe a different thing separate from this, where I talk to people on camera, like at a table, just like sit there and talk to people. That's really all I could imagine doing. I'm not a stand-up comedian. If somebody wrote me jokes, I think I could deliver them, but I'm not a comedian. I'm, I'm just a guy who, you know, like, likes to make a podcast and I read books. I don't know what the show would be. I'd have to find studio space. Do you see how I can catastrophize this? Is that a word? Catastrophize? Like, how am I going to do this? I got to find, I got to get a curtain, put it up in my garage, make it look like a show. Do I rent like a warehouse space? What do I do? Somebody tell me. Like, this is the kind of thing that I want somebody to come to me. I want somebody from YouTube to be like, Brad, 
Uh, I'm the president of YouTube. We need you. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest is uh, Willie Vlaughton. His new novel, Don't Skip Out on Me, is getting uh, like nothing but rave reviews, like starred reviews in Publishers Weekly and Kirkus, I think. Like basically, all the pre-pub uh, review uh, publications have, have been raving about it, and uh, for good reason. He's a terrific writer. He tells stories about characters who don't often show up in our media or don't show up nearly enough, and he renders them uh, true to life and uh, just beautifully. And He's like, like I said, he's also a wonderful musician. So just a thrill to get to talk to Willie for a second time. I think you guys are going to enjoy hearing from him. And, uh, without any further ado, this is Willie Vlauden. Yeah. I mean, I always like Portland. I mean, the, you know, I don't see as many shows as I'd like. I don't go out as much, but I'm getting older. So, uh, that's probably a good thing. Um, but yeah, it's the best of both worlds. It's, I mean, where we live is on the edge of logging. Um, so logging trucks go by our house every day, but uh, we're we're next to you know literally thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of logging land that we can, you know, you can walk on, you can ride horses on, and mess around. Um, so it's pretty cool. Damn. And do you have a TV? Like, I mean, because you say wood stove, I'm picturing kind of like this uh, this sort of like austere. Uh, I don't know. Like- no, yeah, man, we don't have a TV. I mean, we watch Netflix and stuff like that, but uh, we're both. Uh, TV junkies. I'm I'm bad. Like I can watch any movie, uh, and watch it all day long. Like well, I can watch movies all day long without even thinking about it. So I I had to make myself wean myself off it. Anything that's like a, a drama, I uh, I can watch. So uh, no, I don't have a TV. Okay. Out of self out of self preservation. And then what about okay? And then the, I guess that's sort of uh, is, is a natural moment to ask you about your writing routine. So because I think like boxing yourself out from having access to TV uh, helps to facilitate writing time. Like, do you have a pretty regimented schedule? Are you are you orderly in that way? I mean, I just like doing it. It's my favorite thing to do. Uh, and so if if I had my way, you know, if I went on vacation, my vacation would be to work on a story. Uh, uh, so if life doesn't get in the way, I, I'll do it every day. Um, but you know, life just gets in the way. Uh, but so no, I don't have like a, I don't have to write every single day, or I don't have a routine. I just, if given a chance, I'll I'll do it in a second. Um, the only thing I have is uh, I start going crazy 
uh, writing out here uh, just because I'm, you know, I have horses and a dog and cats and they and they just try after a while you just kind of go nuts and then you know uh, living in, in a place with horses shit's always breaking down <laughs> and uh and so you just feel guilty all the time so i rent an office in portland it's like on the edge of portland so it's only like 30 minutes away really and uh and it's like a sam spade detective agency office and i i'm on the second floor and I looked down on a bar across the street that opens at 8. Oh, really? Yeah. Right, right. I remember this. I remember talking to you yeah. last time. So you still have that office. Oh, yeah, man. It's, if, if I don't get pushed out because, you know, Portland's under siege with gentrification and, and, and doubling rents and all that, but they haven't, they haven't, they haven't kicked me out yet. But, uh, yeah, it's the greatest office of all time because, you know, it has thick carpet so I can uh, – and from the walls are must be made of stone because uh, no one can hear me play guitar. There's guys drinking at eight in the morning outside, and uh, <laughs> the bar just got its uh, outdoor liquor license back. So there's guys out there in the morning drinking and smoking, and uh, and I can uh, and I can watch it without without doing it. And then uh, yeah, it's great. And it's got a bitch and heater, uh, so it's it's like an office. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, writing wise. As what? far as just fun. What and why did that bar? Why did that bar lose its outdoor liquor license? Oh man, because they were messing around. They were uh, uh, guys were drinking on the street. Uh, guys were giving people they shouldn't be giving drinks. It just got a little unruly, so they had to build a little gate kind of thing around the drinking area. So, so for a couple of years, I, mi- I missed my you know my. 8 a.m. alcoholic uh, <laughs> watching those guys uh, and it was kind of depressing and then once they got back outside I and they got the license back and then those guys are out there and, and you know it's uh you know I, I it brings me great comfort to see a guy drink at 8 a.m. and knowing <laughs> he's drinking and I'm not I don't know why it brings me comfort but it does <laughs> Uh, and you said you have lots of horses. It's funny because you're talking about all these animals, and uh, you you clearly have many more than I do. But we just got a puppy recently, and uh, uh, I, I've always had you hide your hide your boots, man. Yeah, but I've, just, I've always I've always had dogs, but I, I haven't had a puppy in about a decade because our last dog died, you know, a little less than a year ago, and then we got a new one. And so you sort of forget how much work it is, and then uh, I, I found like trying to get work done. I'm always thinking about the dog. It's like, is the dog peeing? Like, is the dog eating something it shouldn't be eating? I'm like chasing it around the yard and, you know, you can't keep them still. So I get that you got to get out of your place. If you got that many animals, I feel like it would probably be, it's almost like having TV. You can't can't get anything done with that many animals around. Well, yeah. And I mean, I mean, I don't have that many. I got, we have three horses, a dog and, you know, cats just show, I think people dump cats out in this area. They dump animals out kind of where we live. And so you'll get just like cats just showing up at your at your house. Um, uh, our neighbor had a goat show up at their house. Uh, um, but no, yeah, it's just I guess it's guilt. I'm run by guilt. Your dog looks at you and it's like they give you the guilty eye. Uh, the horses look at you when you look, when you go outside and you see them. They're like saying, "Come on, man, hang out with me." Right. So uh, and then there's always something broken that you got to fix. And so yeah, I had to I had to get out. Uh, out of just this the woods you know you can't see anybody and uh so you know you can go a little stir crazy so uh well you gotta you know, go to you get going to, into, you get a routine you get to go to the office yeah I mean, if i could go there every day like punching in if i could go there every day like 
seven and stay there till five, I'd be the happiest guy in the world. That's just, you know, life just, you know, there's always something that's pulling you out. And I, you know, I got too many pans in the fire with, I'm in bands still. I, I make music still. So, uh, uh, you know, there's always something pulling you away f- from writing, but you know, like I said, it's my favorite thing to do. So, uh, I, I, I never worry about it. I just, I just miss it when I'm not doing it. You like it better than music? I like the work ethic better. I mean, music, uh, the work ethic of writing is, is my favorite thing. The grind of it, I really like. The the day-to-day, day after day after day, they just take so long to, to work out, uh, for me anyway. Um, I like that. Um, I like failing in private uh, better than <laughs> failing in public. Uh, and good... I like that no one needs to know that you it took you 100, time, 100 tries to get you know one chapter right. But music, you know, what I've always liked about music is the camaraderie. Uh, I got into being in bands for the camaraderie and just to be a part of music. And that's all I've wanted from it, and that's what, mostly what I've gotten out of it. So writing songs is is a lot trickier. Uh, it's more it's based on luck and, and, and emotion. Uh, I always feel like sometimes you just stumble on a song and you just grab it and, and try to hold on to it. And um and you don't know where it comes from really, uh, or why the melody is the way it is. Um, where where with writing, it's it's more clear cut. You got to get a guy from A to B. You have a set thing, number of things. At least I do of like ideas that I want to uh, talk about in a book. Uh, so it's just more like showing up and working. We're we're got music. It's got more, for lack of a better term, more magic that I don't understand at all. So wait, how do you how do you uh, get get going on a book? Like you say, you were working out ideas, or you come to a book with some ideas that you want to address. Um, I, you know, I've read interviews with you where you talk about. Uh, I think you use the, something similar to the terminology about the sketching out ideas, or you know, beginning to put things down on paper in some sort of rough form or outline. Like, how does it work for you? Well, I mean, I could usually all my novels have started as songs. So I'll be starting to think about certain things like, well, like with uh, Northline, my second book, I, I wrote a lot of songs. I wrote a song called Northline. I wrote a song called Allison Johnson. I wrote one called Don't Look and It Won't Hurt. And then I started writing instrumentals while I was writing the book. So that one started is uh, with the songs, but the ideas behind it uh, were uh, weakness, uh, the changing demographic and racism in the West, uh, uh, alcoholism, uh, how be, uh, how being weak gets you under the thumb of people, and how hard it is to get out when you're weak. Uh, so I was thinking those broad themes, and then the way I the way I work is I could tell you over a beer or or a cup of coffee I could tell you the whole story, just I could map it out like that, like so I could tell you in five ten minutes what the whole where the whole novel goes. And then just, and just then like, just wait, I, just as an outgrowth of, of writing those songs, like that's when you're plotting it kind of, or you're seeing the yeah, story. Exactly. Yeah. And then I, and then I just, I think of the, like, I'll, I'll just walk around thinking about the, Oh, the general arc of the story and the feel and the things I want to talk about. And, you know, like, and I could probably tell you all those things over a, a drink and then, and then I, then I just start writing it. And then, you know, it, it goes left and right and, uh, falls off a cliff a bunch of times and then years pass and um but generally speaking the the general arc stays the same and the soul of the novel stays the same 
and everything in the in between all that gets changed around. You know. So I so I know the basic. I know what the the kind of feel the story will be dipped in. I know the things I want to talk about, and some will change and some will morph. Uh, but I know the general ideas, and then and then it's just and then it's just I'm just you know just grinding it out because I'm you know I'm not the smartest guy, and I uh, I make a lot of mistakes and. So, like, say with a, a short novel, like my second novel, Northline, it's less than 200 pages, and I probably wrote 450 for it. Um, um, so I kind of, I, it takes me a lot, a lot of edits to get the balance of things right. And so, you know, I might write the novel in a year and then edit it for two more. Okay, um, I was going to uh, say, and is that, pretty consi- is that pretty consistent from book to book? Yeah, some take like longer. Like this one is a lot like Northland. Don't skip out on me. Uh, was six hundred pages at one point, and it's like two seventy something um, uh, now. So yeah, so I, I had a whole other storyline going uh, that didn't work, and it took me a year and a half of trying to figure out why that didn't work before I finally cut it out. So yeah, a lot of I can write them out pretty fast. The drafts out pretty fast, and then I spend years tinkering. Um, trying to figure out if I if I got things right, if I'm saying what I want to say, uh, and I don't mind any of that. I, you know, you're, you you get bogged down by your own limitations and by your own by my own uh, uh, inability to see things clearly. And and you know, the more you're with a story, the foggier it, it gets. It seems for me anyway. <laughs> um, and so it's it, it's tough. I like it. I mean, I like the editing thing the best it's my favorite thing to do uh but yeah it's difficult but yeah it's the same process generally some take longer some take a little less this one was really a, a rough one don't skip out on me i think uh was one of the harder books that and the free are the the two uh, the hardest books to write for me hmm. and you know it's funny because i've talked to a lot of writers and uh it often comes up when i'm uh you know when we're discussing how how the sausage gets made, that music plays a role. Like a lot of writers will use music to get into a mood or to get into the mood of the story. You know, it's just as a way to sort of set themselves emotionally to do the work on a daily basis. It's, uh, I often hear, and, and uh, this is true in my own experience, that they will, you know, a writer will listen to the exact same music uh, every single day, even the same song. You know, it'll be one song that keys them up to write it. And it occurs to me as I listen to you that you have a, a, a lucky set of gifts because you can play <laughs> and you can sing. So you, you're setting the soundtrack for your own books. That's like a nice little uh, arrow to have in your quiver. You're, not, you're right. I do, I do kind of write the, my own soundtracks to my novels. That's true. It literally, I mean, in Northline and Don't Skip Out on Me, I, I wrote soundtracks to them because both those novels felt like music, it felt like sad melancholy Ooh, 10 pages into don't skip out on me it felt like sad melancholy music uh to me um that being said you know i can't i can't listen to music at all when i write um i can barely hold a conversation uh when there's a song playing that i really like i just can't help it i just start daydreaming away i mean it's kind of i've been a crutch of mine daydreaming my life away and i have always daydreamed in music uh, for escapism reasons. So, you know, now it's just kind of ingrained in me. So, you know, if I hear a song I really like, I'd check out. So I, I can't have music playing at all, uh, at all, really. Uh, I'd much rather have like a jackhammer uh, right next door to me. I could write to that all day. But, uh, <laughs> uh, 
but music, no. I I once wrote a, a failed novel to a. I did an ambient soundtrack of just favorite like you know weird whale noise songs that I've always because I've always liked soundtrack and ambient music. So I made my favorite list of. I guess it was like a playlist, like sixty minutes, say, and I put that on a loop and I wrote a whole novel to the loop, and it was the most fun I've ever had writing it it took me like eight months or something listen the same tunes over and over and over and i love it and then when i woke up <laughs> when i woke up and and started editing and it, it was it was just so flawed in so many ways um that it was more just like living inside a dream of so the, the novel failed and i had to i had to you know cast it aside but so that was just another lesson to me never to, to get near music when I'm writing. Interesting. And like, do you, like, when you're not writing, can you listen to music in an ambient way? Can you just have it on in the background? Or are you somebody who, when, when music is playing, you're kind of focused on no, it? Sh- shit, no, no. I, I just mean I check out, like, mentally. But I listen to Nick Cave and Warren Ellis soundtracks all day long on my pl- at my place. I put my headphones on. I do all, you know, clean up horse shit to... Nick Cave feels like you're an <laughs> epic hero. So uh, every chore I do, uh, we heat our house by wood, so I chop a lot of wood and do all that kind of stuff, man. If you're listening to soundtrack music while you're doing it, it all feels like you're in a movie and, and you just work better. So, yeah, I, I have a bad, another bad habit of mine is I'm obsessed with spaghetti western music, and uh, and I can't I can't break it. It's like I, I might, it's like I have to go to rehab. For spaghetti western music so at home i i'm either listening to like nick cave warren ellis or spaghetti western music you know six seven hours a day really uh uh but uh, but when i'm writing i can't because i you know I, I i just i can't focus yeah i really like the uh the album the don't skip out on me accompanying album it's like uh what i think you call it like a desert instrumental it's an instrumental record and it's uh it really evokes uh, a sense of place it's a beautiful record Oh, thanks. Yeah, we. What I wanted to do with it was uh, just that idea that you know, when you read a novel, uh, if you like the novel, um, it stays with you for a bit of time, and then and then you put it on the. You know, no one generally reads novels, uh, except you know people that are really interested in in how novels work uh, might read a novel a few times, but most people read a novel once and put, give it away or or put it on a shelf and. And I thought, well, you know, if you put a sound with a soundtrack to it, then if you like the music, maybe you're driving around in your car four months later after you re- read the novel, and maybe for a brief moment you think a Horace Hopper, uh, the main character, or you think of a Mr. Reese, and 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 think about their lives, and maybe they stay alive a little bit longer, or they morph into being half of themselves and then half of something you're interested in, um, but it'd keep them alive in, in some way. Uh, and so I was interested in that aspect, and and like I said, the the, the book just felt felt like music to me. Um, so I wanted to to to, to, to give it give the characters a soundtrack. Yeah, man. And if I feel like if there's ever a movie adaptation of this one, because a, a couple of your books have been adapted, you know, I feel like uh, you got the music already. You just hand it over; it's done. <laughs> well, if they want it, you know, like with Lean on Pete, I made a big case, not for myself, but I. I, I I, I did because in my contract for for movies, it's uh, I get to tell them which music I, w- I want, and I never want my music in it, and I, I don't necessarily even want it. I wouldn't even if they let me. I'm not sure I would want to do a, a 
like the soundtrack to a movie. I just don't know for, to, to my own story. I don't know if I could do it. Uh, it just seems too much. But I always, I always make them listen to my choices. So for this one, of course, I was obsessed with. Uh, I've been obsessed with Nick Cave and Warren Ellis soundtracks for a while. And uh, so I made my big case. I bought the guy, all the movie guys, the the soundtracks, the ones I liked, and made my plea and my my begging. And uh, you know, I didn't go anywhere. But uh, <laughs> at least, but, you, at least, uh, at least your voice, at least your voice was heard. Yeah, man, I always try. You know, I you know with the Motel Life, it was Calexico. I was, you know, Calexico does great instrumental stuff, and and so I bought all those guys Calexico records and. Made made my case for him, and you know, that's, you know my voice kind of disappears in in that framework. But at least, like you said, I got to I got to uh, make my case. So, what are some of Spaghetti Western uh, albums that we should know? It's like, what's the guy that did all the Spaghetti Western soundtracks for the Italian director? Mor- Mor- Morcone's the most famous guy. Right now, he's got like fifty records. And one time, I was touring, and I was staying at this German guy's house, and I never, you know, the guy they just gave me a key to this this guy's house who a musician who i didn't know and i was just staying in his house in berlin for a couple of days and uh he had 50 of them and i would wait i i was busy the whole time but i i would get like two hours before i'd fall asleep each night and then the last night i was there i burned i mean i was burning cds the whole time and the last night i, I set my alarm on my phone every like 20 minutes because i kept falling asleep so i could keep burning because he had all these records I'd never heard of. I, you know, I knew the, I knew Marconi stuff, but man, I didn't know he did like fifty records. And this guy, I think he's done like seventy-five records. This guy, uh, whose house I was staying on, had, had had over fifty. So it was amazing. So he's he's the king. But I've been into this. Um, probably like if my house is burning down, the only records I'd take is it's called the Ecstasy of Gold, and it's just a uh, uh, it's a five volume set of spaghetti western songs. And so it's, yeah, it's just mind-blowing compilation uh, um, called The Ecstasy of Gold. It's so, just amazing. So if you're, uh, if you're just to continue this, uh, this concept, if your house was burning down, which book would you grab or which books? Are there novels that you... That you uh... Yeah, man, I got the, my favorite books are by my bed. Uh, I got uh, uh, like Fat City. I got a first edition Fat City by Leonard Gardner. I have uh, a first edition Roddy Doyle, the woman who walked into doors. Um, I got the first edition James Welsh, Death of Jim Loney. Uh, first edition uh, Dirty Work by Larry Brown. I got Where I'm Calling From, Raymond Carver, first edition. Uh, and I got Grapes of Wrath, not a first edition, but a cool version. Uh, um, so I'd grab all those probably. That's a good answer. Yeah, well, yeah, I got a, you know, I'm a shrine guy, so I got my little shrines everywhere to the things I like. So, but really, I probably, I, I grabbed my, I, my dad uh, had an old Martin, uh, like a Willie Nelson, old Martin guitar. I'd probably grab that in my Spaghetti Western records and leave everything. You know, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, it's like it's making me think. Uh, like you know, the your varied interests and abilities. And I was uh, reading an interview you did somewhere uh not too long ago and you were talking about how as a kid i think you had a picture of steinbeck on your wall next to a, a poster for the jam is that right like that's a yeah yeah i mean i was obsessed with the jam because they were like the working class band uh and i'm really you know i was really into that stuff i mean i i just grew up when steinbeck i was thinking about it the other day i i read uh you know maybe five or six steinbeck's 
of his of bigger novels from East of Eden, Grapes of Wrath, and Dubious Battle, uh, Wayward Bus, even uh, Cannery Row, all that uh, in high school. He was really big in my high school, and so I read him at a, at a time when I was really vulnerable. And uh, and he writes about vulnerable people, and he writes. He just he felt like comfort to me. He felt like the world wasn't such a lonely place. So he became a, a big hero to me at a very early age. And right now, you know, I have a picture of him. He's leaning into uh, Carol Lombard. I got an old picture of him uh, and um, leaning into this actress uh, um, named what Carol do, Lombard. What do you What do you mean leaning? What do you What do you mean leaning in? What are we talking about? <laughs> well, I got a cut out. I got a cut out picture of him. And that picture leans into a framed picture of Carol Lombard. So he's like hanging out with Carol Lombard. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, which is my gift uh, to him uh, is that he gets to hang out with Carol Lombard uh, for eternity in, in, in my house. That's not so bad. I thought it was like an actual picture of he and Carol Lombard. No, no, I, I couldn't find one. I mean, I don't think he was that lucky to uh, have met <laughs> Carol Lombard. Uh, but, yeah, I figured the, he's done me so good uh, and helped me out. Uh, in life um so much you know as a as a kid and up until you know a week ago when my life starts going sideways i and i'm i just dream about living um with mac and the boys in cannery row i uh, like living in an, uh, an old boiler and, and getting drunk with mac and then hanging out with doc i mean that's kind of where i go when when i need to check out from realities i, I hang out with those kind of guys uh, so the least I could do for him is, is uh, for his picture, I, I lean him against the, you know, one of the funniest, best-looking, uh, coolest ladies uh, in Carol Lombard. And Carol Lombard's so cool because uh, she did a, a, a movie in the 30s called Swing Low, and it's about uh, uh, her, and she saves an alcoholic musician and kind of gets him back on his feet. And so ever since I saw that movie, where she saves a, a, a struggling alky musician, I was like, that's the gal for me. There you go. Well, and you know, you, you mentioned Cannery Row. I can't remember if we talked about this last time you were on the show, but, uh, and, I, and I don't know if this isn't like an apocryphal story or if this is real, but I want to say I remember reading about Cannery Row and how Steinbeck lost the manuscript, like back in the day, like before floppy disks and hard drives, like when you lost a manuscript, like that was it. It was, it was a hard copy. And he then set about rewriting the novel from scratch and then like later found the lost manuscript. And when you, when he matched up the texts, they were almost like verbatim the same, like he could remember it. Am I crazy? Wow. I don't that know. Crazy. I mean, there's something, and you know, what's crazy. I just read that he, he wrote uh grapes of wrath in like eight months. Jesus. Now his wife, Carol Steinbeck, I think, you know, she edited all that stuff. Uh, so like he would write it out in longhand and then she would type it up. And I think, his, I think his strongest work was when she was involved, uh, um, but still eight months for that one. And then, yeah, that's remarkable about about Kenny. I had no idea. That's, yeah. that's crazy. I'll have to dig around. I mean, I could be full of shit, but I want to say I remember reading that. And, and, and feeling, that makes sense, man. Yeah, and I guess, like, too, back in the day, I mean, and you know, some guys just are, have amazing brains and incredible recall and all the rest, but... Um, feels like you know there was more like rote learning and memory and better better memories back in the day, less scattered. Yes, I I, I fully agree with that. So uh, before I forget, because we've been talking a little bit about, and we're gonna, I want to talk a little bit more about like ranching and uh, animals and how they factor into. Don't skip out on me. Um, 
but you were talking about a neighbor of yours that had a goat and you know, you live close enough to Portland that this could be a thing. But I was talking to my wife the other day, we were on a walk and she's like, hey, have you heard about goat yoga? And uh, I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, I just saw a sign for it in the window, of this place here in LA. And apparently like there's yoga now where they have a goat in the room. Is, it, is this a thing? Like, have you ever heard of this? I've never even heard of that. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, I got, I got a box of yoga DVDs, but I, I only bring those out when I'm suicidal. Like when, when my life really falls in the hole, I, I'm like, I bring out my, uh, I bring out my DV, my yoga DVDs and um, me and uh, Rodney, there's a guy R- named Rodney. Rodney so, I mean, no one needs, no one needs to think of me doing yoga, but you know, I'm grasp when I'm grasping at straws, man. My, I'm I'm into yoga. <laughs> I feel like maybe you should incorporate your neighbor's goat for maybe that's the missing link. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, people do. They, you know, I mean, people are horrible, man. They drop off horses out in the middle of nowhere. They drop off uh dogs they drop off you know cats and and somebody dropped off a goat and it just ended up at our neighbors and our neighbor took it in for years uh so yeah people people are cruel man that's weird and like i just don't even understand how the goat would factor in like do you use it to like as like a a support like can you put your hands on it to like support you while you're trying to do a pose i have no i mean that's so beyond (laughs) me i just kind of blocked it out uh, (laughs) the, the concept of that uh but you know i mean I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you on that. I'll have to do my research. Yeah, poke around. Talk to some people in Portland. See if they've ever heard of this. Because I mean, Portland's. Yeah, pretty... I mean, if there's a if there's a place uh, where they're they're doing goat yoga, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it would be Portland. You know? um, I did I did Bikram yoga once, man, and um, I didn't know what it was. I mean, I'd never even been to yoga, and I was making a record with this guy, this guy from New York, and he was a really cool guy. And he goes, "Go come do yoga with me, man. You need it." And uh, and I had no idea well, what it was. I just said, look, if we go into a place and there's a bunch of good-looking women and leotards and shit, don't abandon me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, don't fucking, you know, don't go hang out with your cool yoga friends and, and leave me in the lurch because I don't do good in public things, man. And he's like, oh, I won't do that to you. Well, don't you worry. So we get there, and I'm in cutoffs. And, it, and I'm like, why is it so hot in here? And he's like, it's Bikram yoga, man. It's hot yoga. And I'm like... Oh, shit. And I, I, I said, oh, whatever. You know, you're just doing some stretches or whatever. And then, of course, there's some good-looking... He starts talking to some good-looking woman, and uh, he was hitting on her. So, anyway, he abandons me, and the class has got, like, I guess, like, maybe 65, 70, like, good-looking people, and me. And so I said, oh, shit, I'll just hide in the back. And my friend, man, I'll never, you know... It, I, I love him, but Jesus, he left me stranded. <laughs> and uh, I'm in the corner. I'm like, I can, I can do this. And then the the lady, the, the the instructor comes in and sees a you know jackass and cut off, uh, and and says, Hey, we have a new student. Why don't you come stand next to me? And so I had to stand in front of all these kind of you know posh Portland chicks. I mean, people that can do yoga at, at eleven in the morning, which is you know not everybody's that lucky. <laughs> And uh, and so I had to stand in front of all these good-looking people and, and you know, sweating out years of alcohol, you know, and, and, and stretching in ways I never did. Man, it was it was pretty funny uh, uh, and how embarrassed and and how just goofy it was. Man, I never went back. I'm, I gotta say, you, were you wearing cut-off jeans? Like that? Yeah, you... I had no idea, man. I mean, I'm not that I'm not that savvy. Yeah, and 
Sadly, you would think it was a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> but, dude, it, uh, you get into that heat. In that, I've done a Bikram class before. You get into that heat, and it's uh, there could be some chafing. <laughs> Well, geez, I just I went home and I was sick. It, it, it unlocked like a year, like a, a you know twenty years of hard drinking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I was laid out for a few days, man. So it was pretty funny. But it's pretty funny. But of course, no goat in that heat. You kill a goat. No goat, man. No goat. No goat. So well, you, yeah, yeah. So speaking of goats, and because I was thinking about this when I, I know you were raised in Reno, right? That's what we talked about last time, somewhere in Nevada. Is that right? Yeah, Reno. Correct. Okay, so I was. I was reading uh, "Don't Skip Out on Me" and all the the stuff about ranching, you know, and and just animals and how like like knowledgeable you seem about all that stuff. And I found myself wondering, like, God, did you do research? And I guess you live with horses, and so that sort of stuff probably comes pretty natural. You have the vocabulary for it, but like, did you have to? Have you spent time on ranches? Uh, did you have to do any kind of research to feel like you got? that kind of place right and tonopah or i hope i'm pronouncing that right but yeah tonopah yeah well you know i the area i've camped in uh north of like tonopah north i've camped in that whole like central to northern nevada since i was a little kid it was always a really important uh place for my mom and her boyfriend and, and me uh uh we uh, uh it was probably the 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 place we all love the most um, my mom's boyfriend still he drives out you know at least once a month he lives in reno he drives out there once a month so that area was really important to me and you know i'm always I, like i said i'm a bad daydreamer and i was always you know wanting to live on a ranch in the middle of nowhere in nevada um so i was interested i've always been interested in the the idea of it um the the sheep ranching i didn't know that much about uh, I, I know a couple ranchers, but I didn't, I didn't know that much about uh, Nevada sheep ranching. Uh, and so I read a lot about it. Uh, the reason I put that in for a couple reasons, the reason I put sheep in was cause I, as a nod to, uh, Robert Laxalt, the great Nevada writer, I was feeling a little ragged when I wrote, when I started writing that book, uh, don't skip out on me. I was feeling pretty ragged, uh, mentally. And, and so I needed a couple, uh, saints to think about and one of them was laxalt he wrote his dad was a basque sheep herder and he wrote about nevada and about the basque experience and when they came over a lot of them were sheep sheep herders and you know northern nevada northern california idaho parts of wyoming um and they had huge communities and you know eventually they got out of it uh so one of the ideas was about ranching was for him is like a is a little saint to look at and think about while I was working on the story. The other was I was in a Eastern Oregon on a horseback riding trip with my wife, and uh, uh, um, we had a guide, and we were we were forty miles from we were twenty miles from a payphone, say from a from a from a a little bed and breakfast kind of uh, place in this town called French Glen. So it's like a it's a, they'd have a phone and, and, and maybe you could get some food there, but that's the closest place for another 30 miles. And then we were maybe 10 miles in the mountains, like really rough stuff with no roads. And we came across, so really isolated is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and we came across a, a, a Peruvian sheep herder 
whose whose boss had, didn't bring him food every week, who forgot to, you know would forget or neglect him or didn't care about this guy. This poor guy barely spoke Spanish, yet alone English, uh, and he was out there by himself in the middle of nowhere with very little food. Now, of course, he can eat the sheep, but but um, but just to show you how neglected and isolated he was. Uh, never left me. I mean, that that stuck with me. And so when I was thinking about uh, the novel, I was, uh, you know, it's kind of a study in, in loneliness and isolation. Don't skip out on me. Is. And um, and so that, that character made a lot of sense. Um, and so that's kind of how I, I took the area and, and, and um, that subject matter. That's kind of how that framed out. And the idea of ranching western ranches uh how you know the old ranchers uh a lot of times their kids don't want to in the modern society don't want to be alone and isolated on a ranch um and so often the you know the family the kids leave not always but often they leave they don't want to have anything to do without living with with living in the middle of nowhere and so i think it's a dying way of living and so i was interested in that and and also the isolation of of ranching families yeah um it's not for so all everybody. that kind of came into no and that's how it, that all that kind of morphed into together into a, a broader idea of uh of loneliness uh how different people handle loneliness from the sheep herders to mr reese to mrs reese who's kind of agoraphobic to horace hopper um they all they all are, are battling with loneliness in a really lonely environment. It's funny that you say that because, like, I'm thinking to myself, like, I live in the middle of like one of the most crowded places in the world, and I still feel lonely sometimes. Like, even <laughs> it's just, I guess, part yeah, of the, sure. the, the human condition. Sometimes it's like water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink. And then these kinds of people who actually live out in the middle of nowhere and don't interface with people at all, or uh, like your buddy up in Eastern Oregon, who the Peruvian. Um, that's but that's some real desolation, man. Like. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's kind of what Horace finds out too. Is the the loneliness in the and on a ranch is different because you have the hope that in the city you won't be lonely. When you're lonely in a city, man, like when I first moved to Portland, Oregon, which is the biggest place I'd ever lived, uh, being lonely in a city is 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 it, it can just knock you to your knees. Um, there's a being lonely around people. I think can, is 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 probably the cruelest form of loneliness. Um, where when you're isolated, you there's the dream that when I'm around people, I won't be lonely. But uh, and that's part of the what happens to Horace when he moves to the city. He realizes in the city he's just around. He's intimidated and and he doesn't have that much confidence. And yet he's even lonelier, um, surrounded by people, which is which is. Like you said, it's human condition. It's just, it, it's, it's, it can be brutal. So what about, because uh, you talk about loneliness as a theme, uh, I also feel the, it's like this tension that I think human beings have, uh, and there's something very American about it too, between being satisfied with what you got and then also strive, you know, then also kind of uh, striving to get more and be more and, and knowing where the where equilibrium is you know like is that on your mind as well and and framework of this novel yeah sure i mean i think i, I was interested in 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 and in, in a broad theme of broken broken people you take this kid horace hopper who's who's uh, uh, at eight years old is is driven to this little desert town of tonopah 
and dropped off with the grandmother. Now, the grandmother is racist. Uh, Horace Hopper's part Native American, part white, uh, uh, but the, 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 he doesn't have any kind of ethnic identity. He, his mother was white, and so he's dropped off with a grandmother who's, who is scared of blacks, Mexicans, and Native Americans. She doesn't like them, and she talks about it every day. So every day he's got to, even though she loves him the best she can, uh, she, he also, she also kind of just infuses in him uh, this idea of that he should be ashamed of himself. So she breaks him in a way, and the mom breaks him um, by abandoning him, and the dad breaks him by not ever being in the picture. Um, and so the idea was at 14, he gets raised by basically his foster family with the Reese's, and they want to give him everything they have. They want to give him monetarily. They want to give him their ranch and everything on the ranch and because they're getting old. Um, and they want to give him spiritually. They give him all their love. They want them. They want him to be their son, um, but he can't accept it. So his ambition comes from shame. He feels that he's not worthy of it and that he has to be something great. He has to come you know, back to the ranch bearing gifts. He has to become some kind of hero uh, or a champion, um, both, both in the, the idea of in society, but also monetarily, he wants to come back rich and save them. And, um, and he does that out of shame. And so his whole, the strange thing is, is his, his ambition is, is rooted in, in shame, but also, uh, it's triggered by the, the Reese's love of him. They love him so much. It, 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 it stops the kid in his tracks and he has to, he, he figures he has to do something great to, to be worthy of it. So it sends him on his journey uh, to, to change his identity and to try to be this great, who he thinks is a great guy. Yeah, so like you talk about ambition. It's a, that's a puzzle for me uh, when I see it in people and when I see it in myself or I see the lack of it in myself. <laughs> um, like sometimes, you know, I guess it's, it's there and it's not there for all of us. But do you have a sense of your own ambitions and where they come from? And was that something you were trying to kind of work out in this book for yourself, or is it something you feel like you have a pretty firm grasp of? No, I mean, I was more interested in that idea. Within the framework of the book, Ambition, I, I was interested in it, um, the, to, to the idea of being successful just so you're worthy of somebody's love. Um, Horace Hopper wants to be a championship boxer. He's not even that great a boxer, but he wants to be a championship boxer so he can come back to the ranch and say, okay, you can love me because I'm, I'm a great man. Um, I was interested in that. And I'm, yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, I relate to that, uh, most definitely. Um, um, but in general, like ambition, like as far as books and, and my band, you know, I mean, really my ambition has always been the same, which is I've always wanted to be a part of it with music. I always wanted to be in a band that had a van and toured around kind of escaped normal living. Um, I never thought of, of, of making money or being a rock star or, or, or that kind of thing. I, it just never crossed my mind that I could never even imagine myself that because the, the songs I was writing in it didn't really interest me. But but making records and you know having your records in the record store, definitely uh, I was ambitious for that. And, and eventually, you know, I wrote novels for maybe 15 years before I showed them to anybody, but eventually my desire i guess my ambition to have my my novels next to all the other novels in a in a bookstore or in a library or in a you know in a goodwill uh i w- i wanted my my books to be among the other books and so my ambition 
got me to to try to get them published. So uh, that's kind of where my ambition is: is to stay alive in it, and uh, and 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 it always has been to just be a part of it. So, and you talk about, uh, you know, I, I think your your work has such a strong sense of place. You know, you're often characterized as a writer of the West, and you write landscape very well. And it's just very, it's very obvious reading you that you have a deep uh, sense of the American West and um, a deep connection to nature. And I also think about the fact that you have spent all these years in bands traveling around uh, the world, but, you know, mostly I think in America uh, in a van, <laughs> you spend a lot of time on the road, you know, way more than most people. And that has to, inf- that has to affect you. Like, you know, you're really out there seeing it. You're, you're out there interacting with, uh, you know, people at gas stations and hotels or wherever you happen to be, you know, you, you get, a you get a real education from that. That has had to have had a, a big impact on your writing work. I did you know, I did, to be honest, I don't know if it has, uh, you know, I get, I've always been in love with, with certain things in the West. I've always been in love with Reno where I grew up. I, I, I loved that city. Um, for so many years, I, I mean, I just felt like, uh, there was a certain side of Reno that always made sense to me. Um, there's a certain, uh, uh, damage, uh, that that city has through gambling and alcoholism that really made me feel comfortable. Uh, the landscapes, you're right, of the, of Northern Nevada, Eastern Oregon, they just make you, they, they just make me feel like writing stories sit out there because I'm in, I'm in love with it. So really it's just, really it's, for me it's always just about what I'm in love with. I was in love with Portland Meadows horse track, uh, um, like desperately in love with it. And, um, and so I wrote Lean on Peak because we started, me and horse racing started breaking up and, and it was killing me. And, uh, uh, so I can, I think it's what I'm in love with. I, you know, I don't, I never, you know, you will meet really weird people on the road. Uh, I guess the, the thing the road has taught me the most is, is the kindness of strangers. You know, if you're in a mom and pop struggling band, there's been a lot of people over the years that have kind of, um, propped you up or helped you or let you stay at their house, uh, cook you a dinner uh, made you, you know, cupcakes and cookies for the road, uh, you know, bought you drinks, all the, the gamut of things, uh, help fix your car, um, giving you money, giving you extra gear. Uh, so that the kindness of strangers was something I never, or people just being kind to you. I'd never really, uh, experienced in my life. And I think the one thing the band, had, the road has taught me is how nice people can be. Uh, and I never, I never knew that before the band. So I think that, that's probably what I've learned the most from from touring is that there are a lot of really nice people uh, out there that are kind to musicians. Uh, I was, I was going to say it, it helps when you can when you can play the guitar and sing. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, but uh, you know, I'll take it when I can get it. You know, when anybody's nice to me. Sure. Like, uh, like when somebody likes your band or your books and they're nice to you. Uh, I mean, I mean, man, I'll take that any day of the week. It just it takes the load off life when when someone's decent to you or or just gives you the time of day. Because I've been, you know, like anybody, you know, I've lived years of my life where, you know, you're just kind of muddling along and stumbling along, and people aren't that cool uh, often. And uh, so I'll never forget that about the road. 
but I, it doesn't really make its way in, into my books as, as much. And rock and roll doesn't make its way into my books much. Uh, it just it doesn't interest me to write about it. Hmm. And then uh, you talked earlier, but you were just a second ago talking about Lean on Pete and horse racing and how you were you said you were kind of parting ways with horse racing. Does that mean you were betting on horses? Or were you, like, oh, I was a chronic, uh, not chronic. I mean, I never, I never had the sickness. Like some guys get the real sickness of gambling, um, and I never really had it. Uh, I've gotten close to getting it, but uh, but I've never been in like a junkie for it. Uh, um, but yeah, I bet horses for 15 years. You know, three, four times a week at Portland Meadows, uh, and I, you know, I bet Portland and I bet Santa Anita and Aqueduct, and. Um, uh, I used to bet Hollywood Park when it was open. You're pretty good. So, uh, I bet four tracks is is the most I ever would bet. I was all right. I mean, I you know I was real strict on myself. I would uh, um, I would bet to buy myself lunch and a couple beers and and stay alive for the next day, which was how how I got disciplined with gambling. Gambling's all about for me. It's all about discipline. And when I was young, I I used to lose paychecks. Not very often, but I lost a, a, a couple paychecks, and that was enough for me um, to where I really ratcheted down on myself. And so, I, you know, I, I had strict limits. I wasn't great at it. I don't, I don't have the the mind for it, uh, but I could get by. I was, I was reading. There was a guy. Um, he was at UC Berkeley, I think, somewhere in the Bay Area, and his he was a scientist, and his specialty was uh, like the facial expressions, like micro expressions. And how, like in the human face, there's a finite number of micro expressions that a face can make. And when I say micro expressions, it's like these like really, really fast, like flashes of expression on a face that indicate and are associated with a certain emotion. Do you know what I'm saying? So like if you're ever ever with a person and you have some weird like gut level sense of, oh, man, that that person's like angry or about to punch me or, you know, is sad, but isn't is trying to hide it. You know, it's, it's probably because you're reading a micro expression. And this guy categorized them, this scientist, and then he also found people who were unusually adept at reading microexpressions. Like they could watch a film of like Aboriginal tribal people from like Papua New Guinea and they could look at like two different sets of people without any prior knowledge of them and just by watching them figure out which ones were cannibals. And, you know, like there's all this stuff that he was doing. But long story short, there was a guy that he knew who could read horses and he was like an incredible uh gambler he could he could bet on horses he could walk out to a track and just like look at a horse's face and tell which one was like primed you know <laughs> i don't know wow. yeah so it's just that a, sounds like an old wives telling me man but uh <laughs> i don't know i mean mo- most guys i've ever known that are the best i mean i really like that idea and i agree with it wholeheartedly on people because you can read like certain friends of mine can really read people uh, a lot faster than I can, and I can read people faster. Sometimes just like that gut level, which, like you said, might be these micro expressions. Um, but as far as horses, uh, shit, I, I don't know. I mean, I think Andrew Byer, who was a, you know, he's, he came up with a Byer number, and he was a, you know, a mathematician from MIT, and kind of made his uh, his livelihood on on betting horses. Um, I mean, even a guy like that. Uh, I still think it's like 10%. I mean, I think 10 to 20% uh, to uh, return on, on your investment. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, 
it's a hard thing to do. And I, if you could just read a horse's face, man, I mean, <laughs> I mean that's tough because I mean, I'm see, my problem is with horse racing was I fell in love with horses, and um, and you just can't, you know. I mean, as a gambler, I would still, I would know, I would place my bets and then go to the paddock and and look at the horses and i notoriously i just couldn't help it i'd fall in love with some horse that was like you know 17 to 1 and it hadn't won a race and and but it had that face that of just like you just you fell in love and i'd always go ah oh, shit i'll put 20 on it just because i love the face yeah <laughs> uh, uh so uh but that's me that you know I, I had a bad habit of falling in love with horses and and then that's why I quit racing. Is it just you? You see horses break down. And you see horses break their legs. And yeah, it's, uh, it's hard on the animals. Hey, I mean, it depends. If it, low level tracks, they tend to race them too much. Um, they race them hurt. You know, in a big track like Santa Anita, the Kentucky tracks, they I mean, they race them strategically and they don't race them that much. So. Um, but yeah, it just depends what, what, what you're comfortable with, I guess. And what about boxing? Cause boxing's another, uh, big part of your new novel. And I'm curious to know, like, like how did that happen? Do you have to go to, did you, are you uh, into, into boxing prior to writing this or is it something that you had to go out and do a little research on? I mean, I was always a fan, you know, uh, uh, you know, Reno was, had some big fights when I was a kid. Uh, my, my dad was, a uh, um, I mean, it was the tail end of like where boxing was mainstream and um, shown on on regular TV. So I saw a lot of fights as a kid, and then Reno had you know some good like college fights, and then when I was thirteen, they had uh, welterweight world championship. Uh, it was Colin Jones versus Milton McCrory. I think it was. I could be wrong because I can't remember the date today. Uh, Nineteen eighty-three, maybe. So I was thirteen or fourteen. And I started reading about the fight, and and Colin Jones was this Welsh boxer who, uh, you know, they say he ran five miles to work, dug graves by hand all day, and then ran five miles home, and then worked out. And, you know, and I was a sad sack kid. Uh, you know, all I did at, at home was really listen to records. And so I remember reading about him and thinking, man, I want to be him. Um, uh, I want to be that tough. I didn't want to be a boxer. I don't like violence or getting hit, but I wanted to be like him. So I, I, part of Horace comes from that, I think. And then I, you know, I subscribed from like 18 years old to, to when I was like almost 40 to the ring magazine. And I read all about the fights, uh, cause I love the, the tragedy of, of a boxer's life. It always strangely made sense to me. Um, the, you know, it's usually a, you know, boy brought up in violence who's a gifted athlete, finds kind of a mentor, trainer, uh, father figure, and then they rise up if they're really good. And, you know, when you're making money and doing good, people like you. And, and so the boxer finds love, makes money, uh, and then it either falls apart, not, and this doesn't happen all the time. But oftentimes, it either falls apart quickly or slowly, and then the guy's just left with a broken brain and a broken body. And for some reason, and at the end of each uh, issue of Ring Magazine, they'd have the life history of a boxer, and you know, 60%, 70% of them are, are that story. And I, I just never got tired of the story. Uh, and so over the years, you know, I've, I'd fall in and out of love of boxing. I'd, I, I really love golden glove boxing. So I'd follow golden glove boxing in the Northwest and 
couple times I went to the national championships, Golden Glove boxing championships, and then when I w- was researching the book, I went to the Arizona State Championships um, in Mesa, Arizona, and, and, and it was pretty much exactly uh, like the Horace's Day uh, at the fights there. So, yeah, I followed it. I, I fall in and out of love with it. Uh, you know, the, sometimes I see a fight and, it, and it, it, it makes me sick to my stomach, and sometimes it's just pure art. Uh, so I, you know, again, I go back and forth and it's a, it's, it's good stuff to write those actions, you know, those, those actual fight scenes, um, they're beautifully rendered. I, it feels like it was fun to write. I don't know if it was, but I was scared to write it because, uh, uh, you know, so many people have written about boxing. I, I, I was nervous to do that. Uh, but I'd always wanted to write one boxing story and I was interested in that idea of, uh, uh, when you're young, like being, if you're young and isolated and, and, you know, here's this kid, he decides he wants to be, uh, not only a boxer, a professional boxer, he thinks that's the idea, but he wants to change his identity because, you know, Mexican boxers are, are, uh, they're, they're warriors, man. You're not, you know, those guys don't back down. They go toe to toe and they're, uh, you know, they're not scared and Horace thinks they're not scared of anything. And so that's, you know, it's a kid's dream and it's a, it's a, it's kind of a dented dream that a that a guy would have isolated out in the middle of nowhere on a ranch, um, and you know obviously it, 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 he pays a price for it. Um, but you know I you know if I could if I was him back then I, I, I that idea of like man I could change my identity and become a Mexican like boxer. Uh, I've always respected those guys, so that seems like heaven if if you were that tough. Well, you know, it's it's a uh, brings me to my next question because I was reading uh, "Don't Skip Out" and I was, you know, uh, reading interviews you've done and I was reading reviews of uh, your past novels and this novel and just you know just kind of refreshing myself on your full body of work and there's a lot of consistencies in, in reviews uh, with re- with respect to how people characterize your work as you know concerned with blue collar life or the uh, salt of the earth. I'm sure you've heard these kinds of phrases, um, you know, tossed around when people discuss the characters in your books and the stories that you tell. And what occurred to me with Don't Skip Out um, is that it really feels like a book that's right for this moment in American life. Uh, like we live in pretty troubled times. And uh, I think a lot of what is wrong with America these days, or a lot of what ails it, is tied to. Uh, economic disparity and uh, you know how difficult life is for people who don't have a leg up you know and you are able to breathe life into characters who live in these worlds uh, in a way that not many people are and I, I guess the question that I'm getting to is whether or not you have a sense of your work as political if there's any kind of um, I mean, do you see a politics in it? Is it something that you're conscious of as you write, or are you just purely in the story and, and whatever politics happens to be there is incidental? It, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I guess I do consider myself at times to be political. I, I thought uh, Northline was a really political novel about the change of the West. You know, uh, it's about racism, uh, well, you know, kind of like the, the white power it, it deals with white power and weakness and 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 Hispanic immigration into Nevada. Uh, uh, so I was interested in that, and that, uh, so that was political. Uh, horse racing, uh, you know, you could argue that the, the Lino P is political, and it's and it's 
in in a way, and it's ideas of not only horse racing but um, of of families like broken families and kids getting lost along the way. Um, but I guess <laughs> the free is probably my most political book. It, you know, it's comes from the uh, national anthem, "Land of the Free." I was going to say, and, um, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and so it was "Land of the Free," uh, uh, and it was kind of my State of the Union address. Uh, I was so, I guess, guilt-ridden, and uh, that I never thought about that, that we're still in Afghanistan and Iraq. And you know, I wrote that book six years ago, and we're still six years ago, yeah, or uh, at least five years ago. Uh, um, and we're still there, but I was—I would wake up feeling so guilty that that I didn't do anything, uh, or think about it, or, or try to do anything to stop it. And um, and because uh, it's always young working class guys, uh, men and women that get that, that feel the brunt of of war. It always has been. Uh, um, and and so it was that, and and our inability to deal with healthcare. Um, in any kind of like realistic way in the states that, that made me write to free. So that was probably the hardest book I wrote and the most political. Um, so, yeah, I always try to write about the things that I think are important or the things that, uh, that, that haunt me or, or upset me or I can't figure out. Um, I do. So in that way, they, they are political. Um, I, I guess in that way, I, I am a political writer. As far as Don't Skip Out of Me, I think it's, it was – it's more a study in isolation and loneliness in um, modern identity. Um, I think you can, one thing in America, you can feel so isolated uh, culturally. I think it, it's an easy place to feel lost and, and unconnected. Um, maybe modern society in general is getting more and more that way. Um, Actually, you know I what? You, 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 can, you can solve all of the problems associated with isolation simply by opening a Facebook account, connecting with your friends from yeah. high school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I guess you got to like yourself first. See, I, I have Facebook for my, uh, for my books, but man, I, I just can't. I can't. I always, I, yeah, I can't, I can't do social media uh, much more than that. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you're anyway, smart. You're a yeah. smart man. And uh, it's... Uh, Talk about lonely. I feel like social media is maybe one of the loneliest places. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I mean, I think you can feel really, you can really feel lonely, even though you're even more hyperly connected to every every whim you have, uh, every uh, avenue you want to go down. Uh, you can with the with internet. You can get anywhere you want to go. You can see anything you want to see. Um, but the that idea, I think, the basic idea of community and ethnic identity uh, can make you feel less lonely. And I think with with Horace, it, I mean, he's lost. He's lost in that framework. He doesn't feel like he fits anywhere. And when a person doesn't feel like they fit anywhere, they they either implode or or explode or kind of or or lost forever in a quagmire. Um, and I think you know that's what the the difference between how people deal with loneliness um, is kind of the idea in the book too, whether it's the sheep herder, the one guy that kind of implodes to the guy that wants to go to Los Angeles to, to Horace uh, um, struggling, you know, uh, to find a place where he fits in the world. 
So uh, I was noticing, you, you know, the book's been getting a lot of great reviews, and uh, I noticed that you have a, a blurb from uh, Ursula Le Guin, and I, for, forgive me, am I pronouncing that last name right? I just don't Le Guin? Yeah, it's Le Guin, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. She just passed away. Did you know her? I met her a couple times, you know. She was, uh, yeah, that was a lucky uh, blurb to get, because uh, I respect her so much. I, I'm a fan, but even more than a fan of her literature, I think... She was such a powerful, poor person in all of Portland and in Oregon. Uh, uh, she helped get consistent funding for libraries uh, in Oregon. She kind of like made the library system, in, at least in Multnomah County, uh, one of the best library systems in America. Hmm. Um, always the smartest woman in a room, but didn't act it. But everybody, when she would walk into a room, everybody kind of like would kind of get quiet. And, you know, I would like straighten up and suck in my gut when she would walk in the room because she was so damn smart and cool. And she was also drank whiskey and could crack jokes and was, was really cool, but she was so, uh, outspoken and tough. Uh, I mean, she was just remarkable, really cool person. I've never been so in awe of somebody walking into a room as her. I just thought she was so damn cool and at the same time made you feel at ease but but you know you you definitely didn't want to swear or say something stupid in front of her because 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 she's so sharp man yeah, you she didn't, didn't want to didn't suffer fools. you didn't want to embarrass yourself man no yeah so yeah it was lucky it was and, lucky and what about musically these days i mean i uh, you know richmond fontaine is is done is that correct you guys wrapped it up yeah we we, we kind of retired uh and right when those guys got used to not having to listen to my voice and uh they're probably relieved as hell that it, that we were done um i called them up and we did the instrumental record but i i just i always wanted fontaine to have an instrumental record and we, and so we did um but yeah t- two of those guys and me are in in another band called the lions um and so that's probably our next project um but fontaine is um is you know we'll, we'll, we might do some weird art records here and there but no more touring. No more touring. Yeah, but, uh, I, I like I was telling you, I love the new record. That instrumental, it's uh, it's great to have on. I was playing it yesterday. Yeah, it's really it was really fun. You know, we recorded the. Uh, I mean, we first we we rehearsed probably harder than we'd rehearsed in years for it because it's it was just different and it was so much fun and there was no pressure and. Uh, and it was, was super fun for me because I didn't have to sing or uh, worry about lyrics. And then we pull into a, this really fancy studio in Portland, and um, we load in our gear, and got it started snowing, and there was a blizzard, uh, <laughs> and we all got kind of snowed in. I mean, it was this freak blizzard in Portland, and uh, we knocked out the record in two days. Really, we—I mean, we tinkered with it for a couple months afterwards, mixing it, but but the general the the, the record was cut in a couple days. The big stuff, and uh, so it was it was really really fun. One of my favorite records we've ever done. And then what about with the DeLines? Uh, I know Amy, it's Amy Boone, uh, singer in the band, was in an accident. She got hit by a car. And uh, I yeah, was, is she, yeah. how's she doing? She's, it was a year and eight months ago uh, she got hit. Um, she was just on the sidewalk in a parking lot, and then a lady was driving got, uh, with a cast on her foot, on her, on her gas pedal foot, and uh, her right foot, and uh, uh, she got it stuck on the accelerator and, and ran Amy in, into a wall. So a really, really brutal, uh, accident. And, um, 
you know, I think it's nine surgeries, nine or 11 surgeries and broke both her legs, really rough situation. Uh, so we're just waiting for her to get better. And, uh, we finished the record. Luckily we recorded half of it before she got hurt. And then, then we've kind of got her up here a couple of times to sing on the, the other tracks and, uh, but she's still struggling to, to get by. So we're not sure what we're doing. We're probably going to hopefully get going in 2019. Um, it's just up to her health. She's so damn cool. And, and tough, and I love her voice so much. Uh, I hope we, we can continue. I just don't know if, if we can. And the album you were referring to earlier is Colfax? Yeah, that's our first record. Right. And then we did another record uh, after Colfax, um, and we just, you know, with her injuries, we've it's been just a slow process um, of finishing it. But we finally finished it. Um, now we're just waiting to see when she could, uh, she could tour or start playing dates. And so... Um, we're just kind of on a holding pattern until until further notice. Is the, but is the new album available? No, no, we're we're not going to put it out until uh, until we can start touring it. Ah, okay. So okay. just got, so yeah, you know, we recorded it, but it's not going to come out uh, until until she's up and running. And then, are you working on another book? Yeah, man, I'm always working on I'm always working on something. I mean, I'm touring an awful lot uh, for for Don't Skip Out right now that I I, I don't really am able to write uh on the road uh at all and so uh i just got back from you know three weeks in europe and then i'm heading out doing book stuff in the u.s for a month so uh, but yeah i got a rough draft of a novel so we'll see if it's good i write failed novels uh often and so i'll have to see if this one uh is good enough i just have no idea at this point well, it's always fun talking to you, man, and, and I'm really pleased that uh, we were able to feature this in, in the new one in the book club and to shine a little light on it. And uh, oh, shit, I appreciate it, man. I really do. Yeah, it's just my hats off to you. You uh, you do good work, and uh, you know you've built a really cool career as like a as a hyphenate, you know, both in music and in writing. And I look forward to whatever you put out next. Oh, thanks a lot for saying that. And um, you know, when we get, when we hang up, I'm gonna. Uh, start researching goat yoga maybe that's that maybe that's the answer to all my problems i bet you're welcome just in advance you have uh yeah thanks for put, thanks for putting that in my head yeah all right you guys there you go there is willie vlaughton his new novel don't skip out on me available now from harper perennial the official february pick of the nervous breakdown book club if you want to find willie online it's willie he's also on facebook Check out his uh, album of the same name. You're listening to a track from it right now. The track is called Dream of the City Itself. Or no, Dream of the City and the City Itself. Apologies. Uh, so Willie Vaughton, great conversation. I feel like there is a purity of heart in Willie and in his work that just shines through. You feel that? Am I crazy? I feel like I need to absorb some of that somehow. Get some of that into my brain into my uh, soul so good time talking with Willie don't skip out on me go get your copy now thanks to uh, thanks to uh, Richmond Fontaine for the music thanks as well to George Lewis uh, for the music at the very top of the show Burgundy Street Blues if you would like to support this program you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod if you would like to write to me the email address is letters at other PPL.com don't forget about the Other People app. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. Listen via the app. It's a convenient way to listen. Right there on your phone. It's 
So maybe I'll become a YouTube star. Maybe that's my future. Maybe that's my destiny. Maybe that was why God put me on this earth. <laughs> Streaming video. Gotta reach people. See, like, I always think about, like, uh, when I think about on-camera stuff, I like movies, or I have this, uh, what am I trying to say? I have this vision or this fantasy about making movies where you use hidden cameras. Sort of like with Borat. You have, like, lipstick cams. Like, aren't their cameras small enough that you don't even know they're there, so you can actually capture people in a verite way? Like a real cinema verite. Does that make any sense? I think if people know they're on camera, they talk they, they talk to you differently. Maybe they talk to you differently when they know they're being recorded. But somehow, when you're just at somebody's house or you're talking over the you know over the phone, forget. It's all about forgetting who you are. 